families of this country want representation. They want organization. They want participation. They want protection. They want employment. And they're going to have those things through the leadership and the instrumentality of this new labor movement that you're forging. That was the voice of John L. Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers for 40 years and founder of first the Committee and then the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the CIO, the great labor federation that drove the mass organization of industrial workers in the 1930s. There have been many moments of labor upsurge in America, including the influx of members into the Knights of Labor in 1886 the dramatic growth of unions during and in the immediate aftermath of World War I, and the great public sector unionism surge of the 1960s and 70s. But none matches the scale of the CIO moment. If we're looking to get millions of private sector workers into the labor movement, there's really one time to look to for inspiration, and that is the ascendant period of the CIO. Hello, my name is Benjamin Fong, and welcome to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and Jacobin Magazine. In this podcast, I'm going to be telling the story of the CIO. It's a story of heroism. Factory occupations. You know, what What better way to disrupt production than to just take over the building? It's a story of violence. A plainclothes policeman got out, guns in both hands, and said, you sons of bitches want some of this? I'm ready for you. It's a story of power. I think that's what it means to say that you live in a society in which these capitalists wield extraordinary power. And arguably, it's a story of working class revolution. He ended up saying, if this isn't revolution, I don't know what is. I've been lucky enough to interview leading labor historians and experts for this project, and so the story will be largely told in their voices. Nothing is spontaneous. Spontaneous is a word that people who are on the outside use to explain something they can't see, don't know what's going on. You are all part of a common working class experience and a common working class culture. And the divisions among you are much less important than what you share. No matter how bleak things look, and remember how bleak things would have looked in 1933-34, there are the possibilities of organizing new sectors. Today, private sector union density is down to 6%, and the workforces of America's largest corporations are mostly unorganized. It was similar in the early 1930s. Unions had been on the decline in the 20s and were decimated with the Great Depression. The workforces of the large corporations of America's industrial core, GM, Goodyear, U.S. Steel, were all unorganized. In a few short years, the CIO would change all that. All right, so let's start with the basics. What was the CIO? I'll let some of my guests explain, and I will better introduce each of these voices in time. But for the moment, this is Dorothy Sue Cobble, Steve Fraser, Elizabeth Cohen, Ruth Milkman, David Brody, and Eric Loomis. The Congress of Industrial Organization, better known as the CIO, was the main labor federation representing America's mass production workers. So 
think auto, steel, rubber, electrical, packing house. It existed for some 20 years, formally, from 1935 to 1955. And it's the organization we associate with finally figuring out how to unionize America's large industrial corporations. Well, the CIO was the first enduring mass organization of the industrial working class in America. There had been attempts, many attempts before that, but it's the CIO that emerges as the ongoing institutional successful project to organize large sections of the industrial working class in America and make a permanent breakthrough, or what seemed to be a permanent breakthrough in collective bargaining. Well, the Congress of Industrial Organizations was born in the midst of the Great Depression, founded in 1935, but it came after a long struggle of many decades to organize the ordinary workers in manufacturing and mass production plants. There had been efforts back to the 19th century to organize unskilled workers when most of the unions were really a very different kind of animal that organized skilled workers. So following a lot of changes in the economy and the way in which companies were organized and the way in which especially manufacturing was organized and the de-skilling of work that led to the possibility of mass production on assembly lines and so on, the old fashioned way of organizing people based on their occupational or craft group made less and less sense. Well, the CIO was a vehicle for organizing the great mass production industries in the 1930s. That is, after many years of struggle, this poor part of the American industrial economy, the mass production industries, steel, auto, rubber, meatpacking, electrical equipment, that is what was at that time the cutting edge of American industrialism, was totally unorganized and hadn't been organized ever successfully since its inception in the late 19th century. And then through the ages of the uh, CIO, it became organized and that sector became fully organized. So it was a great sort of revolution in American labor labor relations. The CIO led to Millions of people being union members for the first time. It led to the American working class rising in their economic power. It led to the labor movement being a core part of Democratic Party politics. It led to the attempts, some of which were successful and some of which were not, to influence basically all parts of American society, um, including parts that do not seem directly connected to the labor movement. And by and large, it brought the American working class into an era of prosperity that it had never seen before and arguably has not seen since. We're not afraid to fight. Just as soon as we're all united in one united front. And those that work for wages can't have anything they want. Come along with me, fellow workers, let's give the big bosses blow. 
by joining that big industrial union they call a CIO. The CIO was arguably founded at the moment when John L. Lewis jumped over a row of chairs on the floor of the 1935 Convention of the American Federation of Labor in order to punch Carpenter's President William Hutchison in the face. The remainder of this episode is devoted to the story leading up to this dramatic encounter. Lewis and his allies in the labor movement were frustrated by the AFL's resistance to industrial unionism at a moment when industrial workers were clamoring for union recognition. Which raises the question, why was the AFL so inflexible in the face of a changing political economic reality? Professor Emeritus of History at UC Davis, David Brody. It's a complicated issue because it goes to the very foundation of what the AFL was. The AFL was formed in the late 19th century and formally created in 1886. And it reflected the evolution of the labor movement up to that time. And the form that the labor movement took was local unions of the same trade organized in national unions, like the carpenters, the typographers, and so forth. The impetus for that particular structure was that you had the phenomenon of itinerant craft workers going from one town to another. When they came to a town that was already organized in their craft, it represented a threat because if someone went to work without being covered by the agreement, it would undercut the standards. And the way you control that, you created a national union so that all the local unions belong to the same organization and and a craft worker moving from one town to another carried along his membership card and was brought into the other union. So you got a kind of national citizenship of craft workers organized through the National Union, which had authority because it was the vehicle by which you control this flow of workers. This system depended upon the desirability of the skill that workers brought, and so the AFL was a purposefully limited organization. Here's Elizabeth Cohen, Howard Mumford Jones Professor of American Studies at Harvard University. The American Federation of Labor thought that its prosperity, its success, depended on guarding the gates, on making sure that they were an elect group of workers, and that ordinary workers who were not as skilled as they may have been would not be allowed in, and their market value would depend on the fact that they were the kind of elite of the labor movement and the workers. So they were invested in keeping that line of distinction very strong so that only people who were really in the craft and in the craft union would be able to be members. And they felt that would be the best way of guarding their own pay, their own benefits, the fact that they would get be privileged in the eyes of employers. The Federation has remained strong, united, conservative. Despite its power, the Federation's membership of three and one-half millions represents only 10% of U.S. labor, for the most part skilled artisans. The aristocracy of labor, organized in small but powerful craft unions. 
Labor historian Jeremy Brecker emphasized how the dedication to this strategy led to a fractured and conservative institutional form. And the American Federation of Labor was very much a federation of separate organizations. In fact, critics used to describe it as the American separation of labor because it had such a strong emphasis on what they called craft autonomy. These unions were extraordinarily dedicated to this model, partially because it did give them strength in the older industrial forms. They were also, in many cases, fiefdoms for very small leadership cliques, often staying in office for a decade, two, three, or four decades, even often fathers and sons being in dominant positions in the same unions, and specific ethnic groups also being in control. And they had an interest, they felt, in preserving a closed circle of who was in their union, who was in their craft as organized workers. This blinkered exclusivity of the AFL was one of its most notable features. Labor historian Steve Frazier and again Jeremy Brecker. There's a certain kind of anti-immigrant, nativist culture that is bred inside the AFL, which heightens that reluctance to organize the unorganized because they are largely an immigrant mass. I mean, there are many exceptions to this, but the AFL steers clear of that. The American Federation of Labor included many unions, perhaps most of its member unions excluded African-Americans. Generally speaking, they excluded women. They were often based in specific ethnic groups. They might be Irish, they might be Jewish, they might be, as they said in those days, old stock American, uh, what we would probably now say uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American. So not only was it a union exclusion, but it was also a broader ideological social exclusion that it represented. Part of what justified these exclusions was the prior failure of challenges to the craft model. Here are a few of my guests describing such instances. There were attempts to organize unskilled workers here and there, and some of them succeeded, though not usually for in any sustained way. You know, the most famous is the Knights of Labor in the 1880s, which has this sort of meteoric rise and fall. They organized everybody, but... That was difficult to sustain in this kind of period where there was no law giving anybody the right to collective bargaining or anything like that. In the 1890s, a major challenge to the railroad industry developed, led by Eugene Debs, who had been in the Firemen's Union, and he created the American Railway Union to unite all railway workers, regardless of skill, with the argument that they all worked in the same industry and that they needed to unite rather than be separate, because the companies could play them off against each other so long as they remain separate. But if they were united, they could confront the industry as a unit. And and they failed. Uh, And there were other failed efforts in the early 20th century to bring unionization on that kind of an industrial model rather than on the craft model. There had been other very large strikes, most notably in 1919 and into early 1920, the so-called Great Steel Strike, which by some measures at least was the largest, certainly one of the largest strikes in American history up to that date, and a very tumultuous and violent strike that ended 
predictably in failure. That wasn't exactly an effort to organize on an industrial basis, this industry, but it provided a very good example of the deficiencies of the craft model, since one of the things that crippled uh, the organizing effort was a great host of conflicts among the various craft unions in steel. You have these moments of sort of uprising, but there's no institution that's willing to actually work with these people in order to get them a union, get them a contract, get them that kind of dignity that they deserve. On the other hand, Dorothy Sue Cobble, professor emerita of history and labor studies at Rutgers University, believes that there's more continuity between the AFL and the CIO than is commonly portrayed. The standard view of the AFL is that its commitment to craft unionism held back the organizing of mass production workers. And I think there's truth to that. Certainly, there were AFL leaders who believed there was only one right way to organize workers, and that was by trade or occupation or craft. But my point has been been often that to reduce the AFL just to that wing misses its complexity and heterogeneity. Certain wings and certain sectors of the AFL were always pushing for industrial organization. And there were these massive organizing campaigns in mass production before the 30s. We know that some of them failed. Uh, the big efforts in 1919 to organize uh, in Packing House or in Steel. But there were other attempts that did succeed. And here I'm thinking about the organizing of the garment industry. Uh, the ILG was an AFL union founded in uh, 1900. So the ILG grew by some 200,000 members in the two years before the CIO became a committee. There was a time when we were the lone wolf in the American labor movement, and we thought that we were a model union. We believed in the early days in political action. We believed in wealth, in participation in welfare communities, and we have established health centers. We believed and we pioneered in vacation, health and welfare and retirement benefits. We were one of the first unions that have established research departments, engineering departments. Yes! Backing up Dorothy Sue Cobble's point at the end there was David Dubinsky, president of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union from 1932 to 1966, reflecting on the early days of the ILGWU. All right, so that's the AFL. That's the organizational form that the CIO was working against. Now I want to turn to three developments that raised workers' expectations in the lead-up to the founding of the CIO. And the first of those is, paradoxically, what happened in the 1920s. Elizabeth Cohen. Well, I have an argument that the CIO's promise to ordinary workers was, yes, an ideal that had been around for a long time, but it was particularly fueled by some of the welfare capitalist efforts that employers made during the 1920s in response to the big organizing drives after World War I. So 
Those 1920s welfare capitalist programs were far from dependable and they did not deliver much of what was promised. You know, employers would say, you're going to get paid vacations, you're going to have representation, you're going to be able to buy stock in the company. There will be all these promises, but in fact, very few employers actually delivered on them in the 1920s. Perhaps skilled workers were the most likely workers to get those benefits and take advantage of them. But the promise was out there, and that welfare capitalism agenda became a kind of ideal of moral capitalism. And it became an aspiration. Workers said in the 1930s, you know, capitalism can be made to work if our bosses are actually more moral and equitable and deliver on the kinds of promises that would make American capitalism work more for everybody. So that was the attraction, I think, that many workers had, that they didn't necessarily think they had to overthrow capitalism. They wanted to make it work better and work better for them. To be clear, the 1920s was a time when the strike rate dropped precipitously and unions were gutted before the Great Depression. But it was also a time when workers' wages increased and when their expectations were raised, as they were again with the passage of the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act, the second development I want to cover. The NRA provision in Section 7A, which gave workers the right to collective bargaining was crucial to the emergence of the CIO. And that is that it was both inspiring and it provided, um, ironically, a vehicle that employers didn't expect it to. So let me elaborate there. It was inspirational in that here was national legislation saying that it's okay, in fact, it's a good thing for a working class people rank and file in factories and mass production plants to organize, that they had a right to organize and to collective bargaining. But what happened was that employers then set up company unions that mirrored what had been prevalent in many cases in the 1920s. And then workers inspired by Section 7A used those vehicles to elect representatives on those company unions who were much more sympathetic. And so it gave these workers who were seeking much more than just welfare capitalism, paternalism, and the usual kind of pat on the back from an employer. It gave them a way of getting representation and a voice with their employers. In 33, the eagle came. And brought the NRA. John Ketchin said, Our time has come. We'll organize this very day. Many historians, however, believe that too much credit has been given to FDR and to what labor historian Robert Zeger calls the simple restatement of progressive homilies embodied in the NIRA. Steve Frazier. Roosevelt gets a lot of credit for that. John Lewis, the head of the mine workers, goes out into the country and says, the president wants you to join a union. No doubt that inspired people. It gave them confidence. It made them feel that, gee, the president is on our side. This is our right. We should do this. But I think sometimes historians overemphasize that aspect of what went on in the CIO. 
because what's also happening at the time of the NIRA, before there's a CIO, is enormous upsurges all over the country. The Farm Holiday Association, mass tenant movements, strikes in the South, the great textile strike of 1934, San Francisco general strike, Minneapolis general strike, 1934. These are all before the second election of Roosevelt. This is also the context for the CIO, for the inspiring of people, the confidence building that we can do this, that there is a kind of shift in the zeitgeist, that working people generally are fighting back. This gets to the last development that I wanted to cover, the great worker upsurges in the wake of the Great Depression, and specifically in 1934. The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. A gasoline shortage stopped almost every wheel in town. Everyone walked or stayed at home. In Minneapolis, a truck driver's strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. That clip is referencing the three strikes that the year is best known for. The auto light strike in Toledo, the West Coast waterfront strike, and the Minneapolis truckers strike. All three strikes were not only successful in themselves, but they also paved the way for the CIO, in proving to labor leaders that workers were ready to fight and ready to win. I thought I could close out this week's episode by getting into those latter two strikes in some detail. And so here first is Robert Cherney, Professor Emeritus of History at San Francisco State University, on the West Coast waterfront strike. Well, 1934 saw a major strike all up and down the Pacific coast, first by longshore unions and then by maritime unions. Well, that strike was a long strike. It began in May. It ended at the end of July. It drug on and on. The Industrial Association began organizing to open up the waterfront using non-union labor. They set up a trucking company, a non-union trucking company. They hired drivers who were not members of the Teamsters Union. They got guarantees of police protection. Some 500 policemen were assigned to the waterfront. Now, San Francisco was at that time the largest port on the Pacific coast. It was a location where most of the shipping companies had their headquarters. So opening the port of San Francisco would effectively destroy the strike. On July 3rd, they started the process in the afternoon, moving goods from Pier 38 to a warehouse not far away under heavy, heavy police protection. Everybody took a little breather on July 4th. And then on July 5th, all of this just exploded. Strikers and strike supporters used bricks and rocks to throw at the police who were guarding the the strike breakers. And by noon, the police tried to channel all of the strikers and demonstrators into a very small area around the intersection of Stewart and Mission Streets, which was just a short distance away from Union headquarters. A police car drove into the center of the intersection A plainclothes policeman got out, guns in both hands, and said something like, you sons of bitches want some of this? 
I'm ready for you. There's suggestions that some of the strikers may have called him names. We can sort of imagine that happening. There's some of the witnesses who said that there may have been rocks thrown at him, although other witnesses said no, there were no rocks thrown until after he started shooting. But he did start shooting into the crowd, and two men were seriously injured. One died, one managed to survive. On that day, more than 100 people were injured by gunshot, tear gas, police clubs, rocks, and bricks. But the large majority were injured by police fire. Efforts of business interest to forcibly open the strike-paralyzed port of San Francisco failed. Open warfare rages through the streets of the city as 3,000 Union pickets battle 700 police. Guns, tear gas, clubs, and fists bring injuries to more than 80 persons and cause the death of two. Listen to the strikers' side of the story. We are asking for a general strike to keep organized labor on the Pacific Coast. We are not only asking for it, but we're going to get it. A couple of days later, there was a very dramatic funeral procession from Union headquarters on Stewart Street, a block up to Market Street, all the way down Market Street, the main thoroughfare of San Francisco, and out to a funeral parlor in the Mission District, the working class part of the city. That demonstration has often been accredited with making certain that there would be a general strike in San Francisco. During that time, the city was pretty much shut down. Restaurants, barbershops, the privately owned streetcar lines, taxis, bars, they were all closed because the unions involved in all of those areas had voted to be on strike until the General Strike Committee said that it was over. Within those four days, the waterfront employers did agree to arbitration. The Board of Arbitration held hearings, first of all, on the longshore dispute, all up and down the Pacific coast. And at the end of their hearings, they issued an agreement which provided for the six-hour day and the 30-hour week, a wage increase, not quite what the union had asked for, but close, priority in hiring for union members. It didn't give the Longshore Union members exactly what they'd wanted, but it came very close. So that really laid the basis for the Longshore Union that exists today. 400 strikers were brutally wounded, 400 workers and I left to die. Remember the day, sir, to all of your children, this bloody Thursday, the 5th of July. Again, that was Robert Cherney on the events on the West Coast in 1934. Now to Professor Emeritus of History at Trent University, Brian Palmer, on the Minneapolis trucker strikes. The Minneapolis trucker strikes of 1934, they actually involved three strikes, which is pretty incredible in, in, one, in a one-year period. A uh, strike in February, another in uh, May, and a final Victoria strike in uh, July and August. And those strikes were led by Trotskyists, who were a, a sort of uh, um, originally communist but broke away from the Communist Party. 
1929. They had been working, a small number of them, probably no more than eight to ten people had been working in the Minneapolis uh, trucking sector, particularly in the coal yards, since uh, the 1920s. And they had a very protracted view of trying to build an industrial union within the local of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. They worked diligently over the course of the early years of the Depression, which, of course, were terrible years for trying to organize workers. Their union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or the IPT, was totally opposed to organizing broadly in the trucking sector and among those workers who were affiliated with trucking but loaded produce in markets and things like that. The Teamsters Union hierarchy basically resisted anything of that nature. And the Trotskyists thought that was the way forward. But they operated within the established American Federation of Labor Trade Union. And uh, they organized three strikes over the course of 1934. And the amazing thing about these strikes was they were probably the most successful of the three mass strikes um, that took place in 1934, one among longshoremen in San Francisco and one among auto parts workers in Toledo. The Minneapolis strikes were so successful that they basically broke the back of what had been a non-union town. Minneapolis had been known in the 20s as kind of a, a center of resistance to unionism. And the strikes that were fought there were fought in a disciplined manner against a, a very um, recalcitrant and oppositional set of, of employers, uh, against uh, local police and municipal politicians, against, in some ways, a farmer labor governor in, in Minnesota at the time, and, as I said, against their own uh, trade union leadership. And they took a union, this small group of dedicated revolutionary Trotskyists, took a, a union that had probably had no more than 200 people in 1932 or 33, to the point that at the end of 1934, the union that they successfully achieved collective bargaining rights for, for the first time really, had over 7,000 members. And from there, 1934 into the later 1930s, they parlayed this into an, an over-the-road uh, organizing drive among truckers in the Midwest that really uh, precipitated the Teamsters into a, a very forceful presence in the American labor movement. Palmer emphasized the importance of the Trotskyist leadership in Minneapolis. The origins of the leadership of the Minneapolis Teamsters, they came out of the Communist Party, Many of them had been active in radical politics and revolutionary politics for years. The four, I would say, key figures were three brothers, the Dunn brothers, Vincent Ray Dunn, Miles Dunn, and Grant Dunn, and a Scandinavian socialist uh, named Carl Skoglund. They had all been, by the late 1920s, very active in the Communist Party, but they left the Communist Party in 1929 when they were essentially expelled for refusing to abide by sort of a party dictate, the Communist Party dictate, that James P. Cannon, who had led a, a, a very small group of uh, people away from the party because of Trotsky's critique of the degeneration of the Communist International and how that affected the American Party. And so they aligned with Cannon 
and others in an organization, the first Trotskyist organization, it was called the Communist League of America. And it was as members of the Communist League of America that they devised this protracted strategy of organizing and building a new kind of unionism. They were revolutionaries who understood that it wasn't necessarily a revolutionary situation. And the struggle wasn't to build a kind of revolutionary entity within the Minneapolis Teamsters, but instead the struggle was to build a mobilization that would actually achieve union recognition and uh, develop a mass production unionism. The Trotskyists saw the need to organize all workers who worked in the sector, including you know those who just unloaded produce in markets, uh, including those who heaved coal in coal yards and loaded up the trucks, as well as the drivers. And so they pushed very much, and this was anathema or you know, to the employers in the sector who wanted nothing to do with a union that organized all workers as opposed to just a few who moved the, tr- the actual trucks. Perhaps the most important feature of the strike was in what it presaged. It showed that the battle to build a new kind of unionism could be built not only by revolutionaries and leftists within the labor movement, but also within the the shell of the old declining AFL craft unionism. And in some ways, it showed there was a fighting spirit among workers that was developing by 1934. In the depths of the Depression, the workers' movement had been dealt such blows through mass unemployment and plant closures and shutdowns that the old craft unions were kind of withering on the vine of the social relations of you know, production in an America basically handcuffed by, by depression and economic collapse. And so the fact that this was taking place within the old ossified craft unions showed an element of the leadership in those older unions led by people like John L. Lewis showed them explicitly that there was a fighting spirit in the working class that was beginning to emerge out of the doldrums of the Great Depression and that was thirsting for a new kind of unionism, the organization of the unorganized and the organization of mass production and the organization of new sectors. Lewis himself looked at what happened in Minneapolis and he saw the fact that blood had been spilled in the streets and not just workers' blood. What was really decisive in the Minneapolis uh, trucker strikes was that the workers fought back. And actually, in one of the first and decisive battles in the early strikes, uh, when the employers associations organized a bunch of special deputies to basically function as strike breakers and break the picket lines, the workers routed them in the marketplace. And two of those special deputies succumbed to injuries and died. And this became the stuff of newsreels. It was, it was on all the newsreels and movie theaters. And workers watched this and saw workers fighting back. And people like Lewis, the more progressive elements in the, in the AFL, saw this and saw a way forward. And it, and it moved these people to see the possibilities of a new kind of unionism. He was pushed by the militancy that was evident in the streets of Minneapolis to see that there was a new possibility and that the old ossified union structures in the AFL 
were in some senses archaic, outmoded, and needed to be pushed aside in a kind of new, new kind of unionism formed. Lewis looked to Minneapolis, he saw the militancy, he saw the blood in the streets, and he knew that the way forward had to be different than the way of the past. Thank you for joining me on this first episode of Organize the Unorganized. Next week, we get to the founding of the CIO and some of its key personalities. I'll leave you with the reflections of Farrell Dobbs, one of the strike leaders in Minneapolis, on the events of 1934. Till next time. So long as workers feel that they have a chance to hold their own and maybe hope in time bit by bit rib by rib and dab by dab to get a reform or two, they will not tend to radicalize. They will not tend to move forward in their mass into struggle. But the minute they begin to lose ground, something gets taken away from them. Their present and their future becomes more and more precarious Then tinder begins to pile up, leading toward a potential radicalization. And any one of a whole series of particular sparks can light that tinder. And once ignited, under these conditions, the class struggle fires tend to spread quite rapidly.